And you're with The Other 21, a show about how top media, entertainment, sports brands win in the 21 hours of the day when the live event is not happening. Today, we are joined by Mike Morreale. Mike is the commissioner of the Canadian Elite Basketball League, otherwise known as the CEBL. And he's also a two-time Great Cup winning wide receiver from the Canadian Football League. Mike, thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So for those that aren't familiar, can you share a little bit about the CEBL story and a little bit about what your work looks like as the commissioner of the league? Yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, I'm excited to talk about the CBL any any chance I get. Uh, we're going into our fifth season. Um, started the kind of, I guess, the genesis of the league about six or seven years ago, later part of 2017, I got to befriend um, the, the one-time single owner of the league, Richard Petko, in another job, another role I had. And he understood me or recognized me from my time in the CFL, specifically with Toronto, which is kind of strange because I, I spent the bulk of my career in Hamilton. That's where I'm from. So uh, I get a lot more recognition there. But um, nevertheless, he, he owned a team in another league that had been around for quite some time in Canada and really you know, never really caught any footing, wasn't certainly mainstream whatsoever. Um, but he ran a really, really good uh, team in operations. So he was struggling with the bigger picture. How does the league support him? Where is this league going? And I think he felt like he was spinning his wheels. And because he knew my background, not only as a player, but my time as a commentator uh, in Canada and uh, as president of the Players Association, the CFL, he knew I had a pretty well-rounded uh, background that he used to bounce ideas off me. And those ideas became the CBL to fast track a whole bunch of stuff. But he, we found that there was something missing in the way in which in, in Canada and in North America, truly, that we look at the FIBA game and basketball development because it's so highly centered around the NBA in North America and going to the NCAA and all that way of doing things. Yet we had over 200 players that were playing professionally, internationally, that never played basketball in Canada, they always had to pick up and leave. So that was the genesis of it. And really being able to showcase those players and bring them back home, put the name on the back of their jersey, but also to develop the next level uh, star. So with that mindset and a very pro-Canadian mindset, we move forward. And I would say, you know, what we've been able to accomplish in a relatively short, short period of time it's pretty remarkable. And you throw in a couple of years of COVID, it's even a little bit more remarkable. Uh, we're not lost on that, but at the same time, you know, we have a lot more work to do and more growth to be had. And, you know, I think what really helped us is fundamentally we knew who we were six or seven years ago. And we've really kind of stayed to that. We understand where we fit in the landscape here. We're trying to, you know, blaze our own trail as well. Mike, I like, I like what you just said about you know where you sit in this. CBL is Canada's top tier domestic pro league, just like the NBA is in the States. What are other global leagues that you look at as, as a comp for CBL? And just so we're in your head here, what are some of those metrics, both qualitative, quantitative, that you use to compare? So let me paint the picture a little bit here. Further to my previous point about you know the NBA influence here, if you look at basketball outside of North America, it is very much controlled by club teams that play in domestic systems. 
And those players, you know, girls and boys, young and old, go up through those club teams, through those club programs, and essentially become a fabric of the national teams and the national infrastructure at those levels. So that's why you see you know, maybe what look not powerhouse, you know, countries be at the very top of the podium when it comes to, you know, World Cups, Olympics, et cetera. Uh, of course, the U.S. is there, but Canada has not been able to make that headway internationally that it should based on the talent that we produce. A lot of it is just the understanding of the FIBA game and everything we learn here is technically and usually the NCAA and NCAA and NBA style of game. So we're very athletic. We're very uh, you know good at basketball. But when you play a FIBA style game, sometimes you go up against just very technical uh, teams. So when I look at, you know, leagues out there that you know, we want to be like, I first look to those strong countries that have those strong domestic leagues, but not all, not all of them translate in terms of country size and, and how long they've been around and so on and so forth. The one for me that I really like to look at and, and I'm fond of because their path is somewhat similar is the NBL Australia. So you look at you know, the Australian general, it's you know comparable in population to, to Canada. Certainly Canada is a bigger country, but it's a Commonwealth country. It operates very similarly. They actually play in their off season. So they play in their summer, whereas we also play in our summer, which is contradictory to most uh, professional basketball leagues. And for us, that gives us an opportunity to, to attract you know, the highest and best players because there, a lot of them are available. And if you look at the history of the NBL in Australia, they have a long history, certainly a lot longer than ours. But up until about seven, eight years ago, they were really down in the dumps. They were not able to, they worked the, the league that they started. And in came a Ukrainian-Russian uh, billionaire, uh, Australian billionaire, that really saw this as an opportunity and came in and bankrolled the league, bankrolled the teams, invested in broadcast, invested in marquee players. And over the last six or seven years, they have really taken off uh, and become a league that I think fits very nicely into what we're trying to do. And so they've created a pretty, pretty cool blueprint, one that we were looking to create anyways. And, you know, those are the ones that if we can match, you know, I think we're probably about three or four years behind them. Um, I think we've caught up a little bit, but if we can get even closer and closer to, you know, the, the talent they're able to attract, you know, the the fans are able to attract and the broadcasts that they've been able to put out, not just in Australia, but are all over that region, then uh, we'll be in really good shape. You mentioned the FIBA rules, and it's funny here in the United States, every four years we send our best players, right, future Hall of Famers to go play FIBA rules in the Olympics. And you always hear about the ball's different, the goaltending rule requires like a little bit of an adjustment, the paint, the key is different. Are there some, like for an American audience or an NBA audience, let's say, right? What are what are some of the key differences in how the CEBL game is played relative to an NBA game? Are there rules differences? Are there differences with respect to the dynamics on the court? Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So, I mean, we we follow FIBA rules, which really the, the, big, the biggest thing that you notice first and foremost is 10-minute quarters versus 12-minute quarters. No open play timeouts. Uh, everything's got to be done as a dead ball. Uh, there's less timeouts. There is that goaltending rule, which you can play the ball off the rim, which comes into, you know, comes into play more often than you would think. And it, it makes a much quicker game and not just in terms of the length of time, but it's just a far more wide open game. Um, it is very technical depending on, on where you play. 
but it, it also is free flowing. If, if that makes sense, it just, you don't necessarily have to be six foot 11 and, and be a good player at FIBA. You just have to be technically sound and play as a team. And that's really where, you know, us North Americans run into some issues is a lot of these players on these other teams, when it comes to the Olympics or world cup have been together since they're four years old and they, they know each other inside and out. One of the biggest things that we do, and we're the first league in the world to do it, is play with a target score, which is uh, originally the Elam ending, and uh, essentially um, was first adopted by the basketball tournament, the TBT, out in the U.S., to some great fanfare. We, you know, within a couple of years came after that, I saw that and said, wow, this is this just makes sense. It's not just a gimmick. It actually improves the, the flow of play, the pace of play at the end of the game. Uh, we've seen it now in the uh, NBA All-Star game for the last three years consecutively. The NBA has now approved it for overtime in the G League, and they used it in one of their winter tournaments. So it's becoming more mainstream. I think we'll see it in the NBA at some point, likely in an overtime type of concept. But that way in which we finish a game is different than any other league in the world. And it really creates many opportunities from a fan perspective, from a betting perspective, from a TV perspective, that we feel comfortable that we can, you know, roll out a ball in the court and within two hours we can have, you know, a complete game finished with all the possible theatrics that come with uh, that type of finish and just the, the way in which FIBA plays itself. Let's let's uh, let's talk TV and broadcast. You just signed a multi-year broadcast deal with TSN, Canada's leading sports network. Congratulations. What impact will do you think that will have on your business? Not just getting in front of, you know, larger crowds during the actual game themselves, but 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 really like what role will that play in the rest of the business and, and how does content in general play into your business plan, especially beyond the live game? Yeah, so you know, I think we play basketball, but we are really a media and content production and delivery company. Really, we're producing content, really cool content, and that what you know, the stuff that basketball brings, even outside of just playing the game, the music and art, lifestyle, and culture, and food, and all that, and the fashion, everything that it brings. You know, we started our own uh, OTT platform several years ago, CBL Plus. That's something that you know we invested in because we believed in that content, not just the live piece. I mean, we knew that we could distribute the live piece, and we had a deal with CBC, that Canada's a public broadcaster, which allowed us the, the broad awareness across the entire country. But we needed somewhere to be a repository for all the content and the stories, the docu-series and the podcasts and everything, the games in 30 and the highlight packs and everything. So now that we've created that and now that we've moved on to TSN, we move away from a public broadcaster to a sports-centric partner, you know, arguably the biggest one in the country, similar to ESPN for those in the United States. And now it, you, you've got dedicated sports fans that are going to that channel on a regular basis. So not only is it the inclusion of our linear games on the main network and the exposure we get to a, a rabid sports fan base, but it's the, you know, the ability to be on the ticker during our sports center highlights or highlight packs and, and all that kind of more content that we deliver to our fans and even fans that aren't fans of ours yet, but, but are fans of sports center or TSN and the program that goes along with it. And then in addition to that, obviously getting on the, on the digital platform, because, you know, the perception that 
you know, you bring and, and the raise perception you bring from being on a you know TSN linear network is complemented by the digital offering because we know a lot of our younger fans are not sitting at home in front of a TV. They are out and about watching on usually phones or iPads or computers. And you know, we feel going into this season with the what you know TSN does has done in, in capturing you know their market share. But also in what they've done in, in comparable sports and leading into other sports or leading out to other sports. And in our case, um, we actually have some kind of midweek days that are the CBL games of the week that we own. And that to us is really significant, not competing on the weekends, the Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays with with uh, football or 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 basketball, other basketball, which is limited, but some WNBA and, and baseball, et cetera we get to kind of have our own space and, you know, we're excited about it. Where that goes is not just more eyeballs, but with those more eyeballs brings enhanced sponsorship opportunities, uh, more opportunities to tell our stories, more people touch points along the way to, to get in front of people. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that there's something like 200 Canadians playing professional basketball every year outside of Canada. And that, you know, being a summertime league allows these players to come back home to play professionally in front of their friends and their families. How important is it to your fans that they are watching Canadian professional basketball players? And walk me through some of the conversations that you're having with high profile professionals around the world, come back to Hamilton, come play hoops, right? How does this manifest in in your sales and your marketing efforts? If you could walk us through that, that playbook that you've built around that specific nuance, that'd be great. Yeah, and that was that was the idea from conception. And in in year one, you know, we had a, a great roster of talent, and I was impressed with what we had. But I didn't realize, you know, where we are today versus then. So in year one, and historically, you know, in Canada, there have been a lot of failed attempts at basketball, uh, mostly um, with U.S. leagues that are trying to get a you know a team or two in, in over in Canada and trying to take advantage of it, and it just never works out. There's no commitment or tie to the community. There's no like stickiness. You know, we believe that you know being community first and building off of some of the things I learned in the CFL and, and what they do really well, which is being pro Canadian and being community first, that we would kind of build, to lack of a better uh, expression, this CFL of basketball. We would operate differently, but we would really engage our markets with you know, people that they know. So the, all those people that have left us and, and had to go overseas, bringing them back was important. And so the ones that were on the fence after year one, I think we're just looking to make sure, okay, is this for real? And we we figured out pretty quickly that we obviously did something, right? Because there was a change of about 75 players from year one to year two. And then, you know, we provided again, the platform for them to continue to improve their game, to be recognized. They're home anyways, training for their next, you know, European season, their next G League season or what have you. And that appeal from a fan base is important because a lot of these players were stars before they left um, and just kind of went into obscurity. So bringing them home was was nice, getting them by, by being at home and making uh, them more uh, available meant that they now had better opportunities even within Canada to go play on the national team uh, of about the 30 plus guys that played this year in the World Cup qualifiers, about 21 of them played in CPL. So, it, you know, we feel like we're, there's a give back here to the National Federation, which we have a great partnership with, and to U Sports, which is our version of the NCAA, and, and be able to develop those those players, et cetera. But, you know, coming home is important. And, you know, we, we've proven 
the level of play to be at a level that people are taking notice. And in the last you know 13 months, we've had nine players go to the NBA and sign NBA contracts. So that that proof of concept is now just attracting more players. And you know, Canada is a destination, and I think that's one thing that especially North Americans, your their U.S. players understand is I feel comfortable in Canada. It, it, the food's the same, you know, the environment's the same. Uh, certainly in the summer, it's a fantastic place to be, be in all of our markets. And they, their family and friends are close by. They just feel more comfortable. And because of the success we've had moving from the CBL to not just the NBA or to the G League, but also better contracts overseas as well. So we've kind of created a system where it's not their number one job, right? They play eight months of the year, usually somewhere else. But for these three or four months, they can now enhance you know, who they are, become better players, or just get noticed more. So the fans love it. They love seeing the, the players that come back. The players love playing against players they used to play against you know, when they were growing up. It's kind of a full circle moment when the teams come together because everybody knows everybody. So it's it's pretty cool in that regard. You know, it, it strikes me as a as, as kind of a student of this industry. It strikes me as pretty unique as to how your your perspective on behalf of the players is is truly in their favor as opposed to being a, like a capitalist and you're only thinking about the league and the teams. And I guess that speaks to your background as a professional athlete. Can you speak to just some of the tactical things that your front office is doing and the teams are doing, frankly, in between the games or in between the competitions to help these players be on the best pedestal for themselves? Because that's not easy. No, it's not. And and you're right. I mean, a lot of the way I approach our league, we don't have a a players union, but I I operate as if we do. I think it's really important. The players are your biggest asset. You want to be able to provide them what they need to be successful. We don't get complaints about what players are paid. It's very comparable to the G League in that regard. And we wanted to make sure that that was done. And really all we, we need to do and what we do in between and what we do when I talk to our, our team owners or, or our people operating the teams is ensure that their experience is a good one, that, you know, you're providing all the basketball opportunities you can possibly provide to them, but you're also taking care of them. So, you know, and, and usually that means that they're staying in a decent place, that they're traveling, you know, and they have access to transportation and they have food to eat. It, it, it's really not much beyond that, you know, as, as a former athlete. You know, I know what makes most of these guys tick. And we found, unlike some other leagues that have come and gone here, that the quality of player we get here, especially in import, usually through the U.S. or international, they're here for a reason. They're not here just to collect a check and have a good time and go out to the clubs. And I'm sure they do that. And good. I hope they enjoy themselves. But they really see a definitive path to get better here or to be exposed here. And that really comes from us doing all those little things right and making sure that they're taken care of and they're given everything they need. And we can always get better at that. But in listening to our players, and that's the most important thing, you know, you realize we're some of the simple things that they need that can, you know, or even non-financial that they just need access to that we can provide by listening. And, and you know, I, I'm fortunate in some cases, I'm not a basketball guy. I love basketball. I played basketball growing up, but I didn't grow up in that side. I was, I grew up on the football side. So I was removed from it. So I don't have, you know, long long standing feuds, or I don't understand the BS that goes on at at other levels. We're just providing a platform. Everyone's invited. We're not going to pick or choose somebody. We're all invited. 
And I think people get that. It's really helping the basketball ecosystem in this country continue to grow. Having seen it firsthand, I, I, I love it. Like it, it just, it speaks, I think it speaks volumes of, of the league and in, in of you, obviously. But let, let's, let, let's go back in history a little bit here. We referenced your playing career uh, in the CFL, two-time Grey Cup champion, fantastic career as a wide receiver. Now you're the commissioner of a professional sports league. Like That's not unheard of, but what is is that it's a different sport. You've got two professional sports experiences going on here. Give us a sense of your your welcome to pro sports moment. Is there a, an interesting tidbit or story that this audience would be intrigued to hear? Oh, man, it's a great question. I, I mean, like, I, I have to, to paint the picture. The, the CFL, which has now been around for 110 years, up until five years ago before we started and our kind of our, our partner, I guess, not really partners in, in business, but our, our the Canadian Premier League also started. And we're very similar in, in our approach to, to a domestic league and why it's being done. But prior to that, there was only the CFL. So the only, you know, real domestic pro league that understood what it's like to, you know, have play across the country and, and play in, in, you know, in Canada with it's not the U.S. We don't command the same dollars uh, often from partners. You know, the there's a duopoly when it comes to broadcast. It's a very big country from coast to coast, so things are more expensive. So a lot of those things are, are only can be learned by actually doing it. And I was had the good fortune of being part of that um, as a player. And then I moved on to be the VP of, of marketing for the Players Association before becoming president. And that really got me inside look at the leagues and the teams and how they operated. And a lot of my job was policing the collective bargaining agreement, et cetera. But it got me an understanding of, of relationships with sponsors and relationship broadcast, relationship with players and how everybody mixes. So I always assumed I would be in the business side of sport in the CFL. I didn't, I didn't envision a pro basketball league whatsoever uh, or a pro soccer league for that matter. But the CFL is often the place where the same people recycle themselves. So they just wear different shirts year after year. So after a while, I was like, mm, I don't know if that chance is going to be available to me. So, um, you know, when this came about, oh my God, like, again, people thought I was insane and <laughs> crazy. Maybe I did too, but uh, I, I believed that we could have built, uh, we could build a better mousetrap and we could take all those learnings. Um, so I, I have regular stories of, of, of this. This is kind of, you know, Eric, it, every day is a new day for me. And, and really the biggest thing for me, the biggest takeaway and the biggest victory I think we had from being thrust into the role of a commissioner of this, you know, league that uh, was just getting off the ground was getting off the ground, having a successful you know, championship uh, in year one and the, the home team winning and riding that wave and getting ready for, you know, a great 2020 and, and a, all the great things that came along with what we built and then COVID hit. So if I have learned anything, and these aren't fun stories per se, but they're stories of just like, wow, how do we get through this? And, you know, what is it going to take to get through this and who's going to help us get through it? And the fact that I'm not sure anybody was there to help you know, because I think everybody was living that experience in real time at the same time. We just said, oh, we're just going to find a way, you know, and, and I have this kind of no fear of failure. And it's only because I failed before, right? I think a lot of the, the learnings I have are because of my failures of, of 
working in the CFL, whether as a player, et cetera. So I'm continuously inundated with, with new things and new stories and, and new opportunities. One of the biggest, I think, moments for me, though, was when we signed J. Cole last year. And that was really like going from zero to a million all at once. And, and we knew it'd be a big deal. And we knew it wouldn't be hokey because, you know, the relationships that that we have through to to Jay and, and you know, the experience and, and knowing that he's coming here for the right reasons. But that was um, that was kind of the, the tipping point where we thought, OK, now we've not only proven we can play great basketball, but we've, we've proven that we can be significant uh, in the entertainment side of the business. He's legit. I mean, I was at that game when uh, when he he drilled a three in the in the target score portion of the game last four minutes. I mean, I was I, I was he's got game for sure. He's got okay. He's not the best player on the court, but he, but he knows that and he works really hard and he's just a great human being. So, you know that 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 moment was was big, and we're still in some ways, you know got the eyeballs of those people. Now we just got to keep proving. I think that's the most important thing is like, you can't rest up your morals. You're only as good as the last game, the last shot, the last play, the last decision. So, you know, uh, I don't have a lot of time to pat myself on the back. We just got to keep going. Right on. So I'll get you guys out on this. Uh, we have a hit segment, Mike. I don't know if you, if you know, it's called, have you heard not yet sponsored? <laughs> what is something that is happening in your industry that you think is important and is not being discussed enough, or maybe people are discussing it, but they're taking the wrong angle on it. Michael, give you a second to catch your breath. Eric, do you want to start? Have you heard Eric? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one. There's a lot of buzz around the acquisition, the, the sale and acquisition of, of, you know, some of the world's largest teams and franchises. And and I get it. $6 billion is a big number. People talk about it. I don't think there's enough attention around some of the emerging leagues and teams and, and, and frankly, sports. Like, obviously, look at CBL. I think it's totally bullish on it. Look at pickleball. People are talking about pickleball, but they're talking about it because Mark Cuban put his money in it. But the reality is, is there's a lot of opportunity in that space that isn't Mark Cuban. And uh, I have a perennial chip on my shoulder for the challengers, underdogs, you know, the not biggest wallet, so to speak. And, and I think those investments and, and those things happening around these emerging leagues and teams deserve as much attention. Well, I will agree with you, Eric, <laughs> as, as, as I, as I, I usually do. I think we're, we're singing from the same songbook. I, I, I agree that, you know, we, I certainly think we're well positioned. We've had our discussions with private equity firms, et cetera. You know, the one thing that's, that's interesting in sport is just the valuation process of sport, which is unlike any other asset out there and it's very top line driven it's it's a you know a multiplier of top line revenue so often when you're first starting a sports league like we did you know one of the greatest successes we had was because we managed costs we really really managed the expense line because you can easily come in and, and you know blow everything right out the gate and hope that it latches on or you can just take the slow and steady approach and just be to the, to my earliest point understand who you are 
right? Why try and compete against, you know, those that aren't? But to me, the understanding, the business model around sport is really about generating revenue. So, you know, we're at the stage now with new external partners that are coming in that we're evaluating our business and saying, okay, where do we need to invest so we can generate more and therefore have more value in the marketplace? And it's tricky because I don't think there's one, you invest in people, do you invest in marketing, do you invest in facilities, do you invest in, in players? There's a, there's a whole host of things to do that, but it's unlike most traditional businesses. And unless you're involved in it, and because it's so scarce, you know, it, it really, I don't think there's a, there's a playbook for it. There really isn't. And every market's different. I, I know the challenges we have in Canada being recognized like, you know, some Syria team would be in, in Italy is a little different. But I think our value is just the same. As a matter of fact, I think there's more upside to, to an industry like ours that's just young and impressionable with room to grow. We're joined today by the commissioner of the CEBL, Mike Morinelli. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys.